Well, folks, welcome back to Worldview Matters. This is Bob and Ross, and we are so glad to be back with you. Hopefully, you had a chance to listen to the show that we did previous to this one, because we're going to pick up pretty much in the same place that we left off. We'll summarize very briefly what we talked about then and then launch on off. But, Bob, glad to be back with you. Hope you're feeling better, my friend. Thanks, Ross. It's always great to be with you. And I know that the things we talk about every show have incredibly dynamic, important underlying effects on everyday life because worldview really does matter. What we think, how we process the world around us, uh, affects every aspect of our lives. And we've been talking about that a lot. On the last show, we talked about the, the recent election and where we are with that and the implications of that. And I know you've got a lot of things you want to pick up from there and talk about today. Well, I think that's exactly what we are trying to do is to be really in, we, we want to be culturally relevant. Worldview does matter. We don't want to talk about things that are ethereal, although there are some core messages that seem ethereal because we're talking about the past, but our view is that the past is prologue and that there is a truth that we need to be seeking, and that's our goal. But let's take that and go back to the previous show, Bob. Maybe you could take just a second and summarize what we talked about uh, in the previous 30 minutes and then make a relative statement about where we're going with this particular period that we're going to be talking to the folks in today. Well, you know, so many of the things that are, that are occurring in our current culture, in the, in the marketplace of ideas, uh, on, the, on the talk shows, uh, in the political arena, certainly in the economic arena, Ross, so many of these, of these conversations sound hauntingly like the conversations that I had as an undergraduate student at Columbia back in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Columbia, I have an undergraduate degree in economics from Columbia, and during that season, the whole economics department of Columbia was moving more and more into Marxist ideology. Uh, there was a liberal undercurrent. There was a naturalism that was already firmly entrenched in the geology department at Columbia. It was firmly entrenched in the philosophy department at Columbia. And it was bleeding over into the economics department at Columbia. And, uh, and so many of, the, of the, the classes that I attended uh, talked about this this new world order, this this great hope that was going to come out of America as our culture moved from a capitalistic based e- economy to a socialist based economy. And uh, you know, President Obama and I were were uh, in school about the same period. I'm a little bit older than he is, but not much. I know last time we talked about the emerging. Uh, economic system of socialism. And I think that, you know, most Americans may not understand a lot about socialism, but uh, the, the, the Cliff Notes version of socialism basically is that wealth must be shifted from private hands to public hands if we're going to have a society that's going to be uh, beneficial. That's really the whole ideology behind socialism. And Ross, we see that happening today, don't we? Well, we do. 
And it seems as though, correct me if I'm wrong here, socialism, which has its roots uh, in the teachings of Karl Marx and the ultimate of socialism is Marxism or communism. It's an economic system. It's a religious system. It's a social system. It's a political system. It's pervasive in its uh, in its inculcation into all of these areas of life. Is that accurate? Well, I, I think it's <clears throat> not all socialists are Marxists and not all Marxists. Let me rephrase that. Not all socialists are Marxists, but most Marxists are socialists because socialism is, is a logical step between the Western cap democratic uh, societies driven by capitalism and the ultimate communist state that most Marxists want to see happen. So socialism is a, is a bridging economy, a bridging economic system between capitalism and ultimately communism. So most Marxists look at socialism as be, being very, uh, very usable. And, and, and that's why I think a lot of us don't see socialism as being a real danger because uh, we don't think we don't see how it can ultimately lead to socialism, but you have to understand that for many many people, especially in our universities today, there is an ideology, and it's not just a Marxist ideology, Ross. It's a naturalist ideology. Marx talked about used the term uh, scientific atheism. In atheism, the fact that there is no God. Uh, is is the cornerstone of Marxism, and that's more and more creeping into our culture. No, so now when you say that, what I believe people who want to argue this point on the other side would say is, now wait, wait, wait a minute, scientific atheism, there is no God. We're not saying there's no God. As a matter of fact, we're saying that there is a God, and God would want to take care of everybody just exactly like we're trying to do with the government. Now, we're taking, obviously, we're taking money in, the government would say. We're taking money in, but look what we're doing with it. We're doing good. We're, we're doing the things that take care of people. That's what God would want to do, is that not? So don't give me any of this scientific atheism. Would that not be the counterpoint that they might make here? Well, it would. And, and, you know, honestly, I think that that Western Christians uh, need to need to acknowledge that, that in large part, uh, Western Christianity, uh, especially a lot a broad based evangelicalism that's changing somewhat in recent decades. But uh, the large based evangelicalism that we saw in the 20th century didn't probably got low marks maybe C minus is to D when it came to taking care of the poor and looking out for social concerns. And I think that might be another show for the future, Ross, that we can look at some of the shortcomings of the church. And now the church really has failed to, uh, to fight for justice and the social agenda the way that it should. And what that has done is it's created a vacuum in which Marxists and liberals and naturalists have been able to exploit. But what our average person on the street needs to realize, I'm especially hopeful that our 20-somethings will, will hear what I'm about to say, is that in many ways the church really has 
failed on some of the major kingdom civic principles that Christ himself talked about. We have, and we need to correct that. Ross, you and I have talked about that a lot in the past, that the church yeah. needs to, in many ways, grow up and act more like Christ wants it to act. But what, two, what two things about that. One is we've abdicated the responsibility as a church and as a family, as a culture, no doubt about that. The other part of that is that when we when we say the poor, what are we saying? Because I, the if we live in a society where there is individual responsibility, then it's it's not it's not horrible to not take care of some people. The problem is where do we draw that line? If you have Let's pull out a number. You have X number of people who do need or want some help. You need to help because that help is warranted and they're unable to do on their own. There are others who simply won't do. How do you draw? Where do you draw that line? Well, the lines have to be drawn uh, individual by individual, Ross. They have to be drawn on a case-by-case basis. There has to be a system governed by good, whole, whole Christian people who can meet people where they are at any point on this journey and help them take the next step. Uh, government systems, bureaucratic systems, aren't able to do that, but they've moved into the vacuum that was created by a, uh, if you want, a, a neglect in some ways of the church. You know, the, thing, the reason that Marxism gained such a hearing, gained such an emotional base in Europe in the late 1800s and certainly in Russia in the early 1900s is because there were a couple of things that Karl Marx talked about that were decidedly Christian. One thing he talked about was the value of work, the value of production, that uh, you know what we do has value and meaning to it. Now, there's no basis for that in the naturalistic worldview. We can talk about that later. He borrowed that from Christianity. The other thing that he championed was that there's something valuable about doing this in community. And so it, it requires community oversight. It requires a church to look out for widows and orphans in their distress. But when the church neglects that, it creates a, a vacuum for other ideologies to move in. Was the comment that he made not uh, paraphrased here from him who has to him who needs or from each according to his ability ability to each according to his need? Is that that's right? Okay. And, you know, if you look at that, that's really not that far off from uh, what Christ taught. You've got, you know, if you've got two cloaks, give one away. Uh, if someone compels you to go one mile, go two with them. There is a, a beneficence to the Christian kingdom that was founded by Christ that should make us all better citizens, better, better people who look out for one another. And when we fail to do that, it, it creates, uh, it creates a, a situation where lies can move into that. And I think that's what we've seen. You and I and other shows have talked about the declination of 
the church and Christian theism over since the 1500s. And I know we're going to talk more about that at other shows, but we need to especially, I think, realize that Marxism is not the same as Christian uh, Christian caregiving and benevolence. It's not the same. It's a di- it's built on a different system entirely. Is, okay, so it's built on a different system. Is it different in the way that it is applied? Is it different to the degree that it's applied? Because I think I think everybody wants to know. Okay, let, let's let's say for example that we understand that the basis of socialism. You know, the ultimate of socialism is Marxism, and that's not where we want to go. But there are elements of that belief system that seem to make sense, which is take care of those in, quote, need. Now, what is need? Is that not a big part of the difference between a Christian worldview and a Marxist worldview? Is what, is, what, does, what defines need? Well, you and I are, are probably not going to, uh, unpack that in this show or in a hundred shows about what constitutes human need and what human needs are legitimate and illegitimate. The fact is, though, that uh, you and I, as biblical theists, understand that after the fall of man, one of the things that God did to create an environment to make man dependent upon him was he cursed the ground. He made it difficult for man to earn a living. Uh, he, it, you know, it brought forth, in the words of Genesis, thorns and thistles. In the garden, there was this perfect economy, if you will. All man had to go was go up, get up in the morning, go out and pick whatever fruits and vegetables he needed, and there was never any lack, never any, uh, any, anything but abundance. But after the rebellion occurred, all that shifted. And since then, mankind has been struggling economically. And, uh, you know, you and I, uh, from looking at things from a biblical worldview, recognize that this is really where the Christian work ethic evolved from. And Western capitalism basically was originally built on this work ethic. And there were basically two parts to that. One part was that we should do all things heartily as unto the Lord. That In a sense, our work is worship. The other part of it is that we have a stewardship of the things that God has provided for us. He blesses our work. He bestows wealth upon us as an extension of his goodness, that our wealth should be managed wisely for the glory of God, and that our wealth should be shared selflessly for those in need around us. And mature Christians understand that and live by that. When the church becomes immature, often that is neglected. Well, I guess it puts um, it puts does put pressure on us as Christians. It uh, also continues to beg the question of responsibility of Christians and responsibility of the individual. And now is when we come in conflict with the responsibility of the government and what we are willing to give to them and what they are intent on taking away from the individual, which is part of that responsibility. So I think probably we can, and one of the ways that they will confiscate that responsibility to some degree or take away that 
portion of the worldview is that they will begin to move toward eliminating the tax deduction for gifts to charity. Now, some people don't realize that the first 3% of your adjusted gross income is an amount that is taken away from your contribution. So let's say that you make contributions to charity of $10,000 and 3% of your adjusted gross income is $3,000. Then you're only able to to write off $7,000 of your contribution. So they've begun to chip away at that. And a lot of people don't recognize that. But I think the next move would be to increase that from 3% to a higher number or eliminate it altogether. Not saying that, um, well, anyhow, that, I believe that that's the direction we're going in. So people, when they do contribute to, quote, worthy causes, charity, Christian work, the their desire to do that is going to be tested, I believe, in the future because we will move toward it not being deducted from our adjusted gross income and therefore pay tax on it. Well, you're making a great point, Ross, in that in that the change that's happening <clears throat> is still relatively incremental. I, I think as we see this worldview and ideology become more and more systemic, we're going to see the pace of that change increase. It, it's, a, it's a lot like boiling a frog in a kettle. You put him in a in a, in a a kettle of cold water, and you gradually turn up the rheostat until he boils, boils a lot because he won't jump out. And I think in many ways, Ross, that's what's happening to the American populace. We're being slowly converted. Let me use that word intentionally. We're slowly being converted to a new religion that's based on a new worldview. Now, I think if you if you ask your average American, are you being converted to Marxism? They would go, absolutely not. I'm not a Marxist. I'm not a communist. I'm an American. But what's actually happening here is, and it's been happening for several decades now, several decades, is that there's gradually incremental change happening. It starts in the ideologies on our university campuses, and now it's slowly working itself out into the policies of our national governments. You know, incrementalism, I think, is is an important idea here. Let's go back. Very few, possibly few people who listen to us will remember this. But there was a man named Jack Parr who preceded Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. And he walked off of his show because the censors censored him for having told a joke where he used the term water closet. Water closet was meant bathroom. He used that term. That was censored. He felt like that that should not have been. You li- you listen. You have profanity that is full. It is in most shows today, and they will get PG-13 ratings with that particular item in place. And there's where we've come in 50 years. That's incrementalism. You're right. And, and some of our listeners would say, and that's, that's a good thing. It's about time that, that you, uh, that you uh, Bible-thumping legalists who've been in charge of our culture all this time finally were shoved to the sidelines. Uh, and that what, what we need to understand is that 
whether you like what's happening or don't like it, it is happening incrementally and there's a worldview that supports it. And one of the things I hope we can do, I know, I know our time is running out in this show, but one of the things I hope we can do is, real, is alert our listeners to the fact that Marxism is becoming more and more of a part of our national agenda. And Marxism has an agenda just like Islam does. There is an economic engine. There is a political engine. There is a social uh, institutional engine. All of these things are embedded in Marxism. And Marxist philosophy, ideology, is built on naturalism. And we've talked about naturalism in some of our earlier shows, so we can refer our listeners to go back and listen to some of the how, the, how naturalism answers the eight great questions of worldview. But, but Karl Marx was an atheist, Ross. He, his, whole, his whole ideology was the cornerstone of, of his Marxism is that matter, nature is all that matters. There is no God. Religion is simply the opiate of the people. And there is an, a utopia coming, but it's not a utopia that's, give, that's going to be brought by Christ at his second appearing. It's a utopia, a perfect society, that's going to emerge in the midst of these class struggles. And uh, one of the things that, that just recently, as I've been thinking about our national uh, landscape, I want to go back to my days at Columbia again, because one of my professors predicted almost prophetically that there was going to come a day when a great economic crisis was going to occur in Western civilization. And that economic, I'm not talking about a recession or even a depression, Ross. I'm talking about a wholesale, upside down, topsy-turvy, shuffling reorientation of everything that we know economically. And that out of the out of the ashes of that incredible economic meltdown is going to emerge a new communist state. Now, I've been asking myself the question, why don't people realize that our national debt is spiraling out of control? And then I realize, oh my goodness, somebody somewhere is looking at this trillion and trillion dollar debt, not as a bad thing, but maybe as the, as the catalyst to a, to a good thing. Yeah. And that... That's terrifying. That's terrifying. It really is terrifying. And, and I, I, think, I hope our listeners will go, whoa, I never thought about that before. I, never, I, I just assumed these guys were going to one day get this thing under control. And I'm not talking about Democratic or Republican agendas here. I'm talking about there's this ideology that's riveted throughout our culture that's based on naturalism that says there's going to be a, an emerging world order that's not based on God, but, but based on an evolutionary development of mankind that leads to a place where basically people are good, they act, you know, they act ben benevolent toward one another apart from any goodness that's inherent to them. You're looking at the extremes of these trends, 
socialism leads to Marxism. Freedom under that system would lead to oppression, or the other side would be oppression. Growth would move to stagnation, and we're stagnant right now. So what's the next step? That would be wealth moving to debt. Uh, something that's benign, moving to something that's cancerous, life moving to death. Those are the trends that we're talking about. Naturalism, socialism, communism, away from a freedom, a republic that Franklin said, when asked the question, what have you given us? He said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Mm. That's what we're questioning today can we re can we keep this and our republican form of government the one where we have rep it's a representative form of government that's the that's how you you don't go up there and and redress your own grievance you supposed to have it go through your congressman or your senator and uh, an extension of that representative form of government is the um, Electoral College, where you vote and each state has certain number of votes that then elects the president. Um, good system that we were left with, but certainly we're seeing that being eroded today as we speak. Scary. Well, and what's ironic about that is that the, the USSR stood for the United Soviet Socialist Republic. Mm -hmm. They saw themselves as a republican society, uh, as of officials being uh, given authority from the government to be able to, to, to through the bureaucracy, uh, disperse benefits to the populace. So, Ross, it's, it's, not just, it's not just a form of government that we're about to lose. In fact, we might even be able to retain some of the forms of a democratic republic. But what's being undermined is the worldview, a worldview of, of Christian theism and replaced with a worldview of naturalism. Karl Marx, Karl Marx, who became an atheist uh, while he was at the University of Berlin in the, in the early 1800s, maybe mid-1800s, um, he, he said basically that atheism in practice should lead to the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. That's Marxism. That's what Marx taught. It's the, the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. There has to be. That's what the dialectic. Now, now Marx borrowed his dialectic from, uh, uh, from, from other philosophers. He, he borrowed the dialectic from George Heigl, and he borrowed atheism and materialism from Ludwig uh, uh, Feuerbach. But but his his ideology, which is which is atheistic in nature, driven by a socialist economic engine, is bent on creating a new world order that where Christ is replaced by the state and. I don't think your average American realizes that there's an agenda fueled by a worldview that's being slowly, incrementally, and it has been now for decades, uh, fostered upon the American people. Mm. Wow. I hope 
our listeners will try to digest what we're talking about, not, not casting aspersions on anybody's ability to understand, simply saying that we'd like for you to think about it. We'd like for you to comment back to us. Not everyone is going to agree. We're in a marketplace of ideas. Actually, one thing I hope that our listeners will do is I hope that they will study. I hope that they will go back and read Marxism. I hope they'll go back and read Lenin. I hope that they'll go back and read uh, Engels. I hope that they'll go back and read Heigl and Feuerbach and all these other guys. that They've been dead now for you know, almost two centuries, but their ideology and their worldview is still alive today. Well, a lot of challenges we have to face. And, you know, in, in one way, these challenges are they're creating uh, a, a very big cleavage in terms of our thinking process, understanding our thoughts and our worldview. That can't be all bad because where where you do have this conflict, you'll deal with the issues where we probably would not deal with them as we have been sort of boiled like a frog. And maybe the heat's been turned up here and it's causing us to look way more concretely and specifically at what's happening. That can be good. Let's assume that it is. Continue our pursuit of truth through worldview matters because as you and I do believe and I I believe that worldview does matter come back and join us again Bob thanks for uh, engaging 30 minutes Uh, look forward to continuing this discussion next week please come back with us folks thanks again Bob always good to be with you Ross This has been Worldview Matters, brought to you by Big Brains Media. To leave feedback for Ross or Bob, visit us at www.bigbrainsmedia.com.